I was uh, talking with my husband this uh, evening, and he was complaining it was 28 degrees in France. <laughs> I told him he should be here. <laughs> and I mean, as it's a talk, I mean, I would have uh, kind of uh, suggested to sit more comfortably, but there is many of you, and there is not much space against the against the wall. So, you know, if during the talk you want to move, you want to, you know, spread your leg a little, you know, do what you can to be comfortable. I am aware it's, you know, it's not, uh, cannot. I remember when I was in Korea, having to sit and moving during this long chanting kind of ceremony or talks, and I can understand if you want to move and whatever <coughs> so first I have a, a little announcement because there was a little note uh, this morning which kind of was asking the bell ringer please ring the bell near the yurt in the garden thank you and actually uh, it's not recommended <laughs> to do this uh, before 8 a.m. and after 8 p.m. Because it's kind of like uh, to stay harmonious with our neighbor, uh, we cannot make noise before 8 a.m. or after 8 p.m. So please don't ring the bell near the yurt at this time, because especially on a weekend, they're not keen on that. And so then the person who uses the yurt at those times really has to bring their own uh, watch, please, because otherwise we have little trouble with the neighbors. We try to not be too noisy for them. And so this uh, evening, actually I wanted to continue uh, a little from uh, something that uh, Jake was talking about this morning. And he's in a way looking at what are we doing when we sit in meditation? What are the building blocks of meditation? And how is that going to make a difference? And so first I'd like in a way to tell a little story about how this became a little obvious to me. Because uh, I was trained in the Zen tradition in Korea. And in Korea, you really don't talk about awareness. Nowadays, they talk about it, but in those days, nobody in the Zen monastery talked about awareness, mindfulness. You don't really talk about this. In Korea, you talk about questioning. What is this? That's all you do. And so that's what I was doing, because in Korea, you sit for long periods, three months, twice a year, 10 hours a day, 50 minutes sitting, 10 minutes walking, and you know, you do that 10 times in the day. So lots of sitting, lots of meditation. And what was interesting, doing this meditation, which had nothing to do with awareness, was actually very quickly, within less than six months, I had two experiences which actually started to show me how it worked. 
and actually started to, in a way, giving me faith in the practice, in the meditation. The first experience was actually an experience of awareness. And I know today you might have been sitting in meditation, trying to be aware of the breath, being aware of the body, being aware of the ground. And a lot of the time you might have been lost in thought. And possibly thought, this is not working. If I meditate, I should not have thought. But actually, being aware of one's thoughts is very much part of the meditation process. To actually be aware of what is it I'm thinking? How am I thinking? And how is that determining my action? Because that's what is interesting. And so I was in Korea, sitting in meditation, doing my, you know, what is this, what is this, what is this? And suddenly, I became very aware. I became so aware of my thoughts. And what I became aware of was that actually all my thoughts were about me. <laughs> But up to that moment, I thought I was amazingly compassionate. Since a young age, I had wanted to save the world. You know, I would have given my shirt to anybody who asked for it, and even did not ask for it. <laughs> and suddenly, there was this kind of like stark seeing. Hmm. Actually, I am fairly self-centered. I would have said then 95%. But what was interesting in that moment of awareness, I did not feel bad. I did not think I was terrible. And I could never be a Buddhist if I was like this, self-centered. But in that moment, I thought, oh, that's what the problem is. You know, you think you're compassionate, but actually you're fairly self-centered. And so then the, the, my job as a practitioner was to reduce the percentage, moving from 95 to 50, not to zero. Because if I don't take care of myself, nobody else will, so 50. But I think this is a good coming down, 95 to 50. And what was interesting in that moment was this total acceptance and also this clarity of really seeing what I was thinking, how I was thinking. And seeing that actually I was sitting with four other ladies in the room, and actually they were doing fairly the same as me, you know, thinking about themselves before anybody else. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And again, I did not judge them. I just thought, hmm, that's what we do. So the awareness was not just awareness of self but actually awareness of others. And I think this is the thing, with this awareness we talk about, it's not a judging awareness. It's not something to make us more self-conscious than we already are. But actually, it's an awareness, a mindfulness, which actually see clearly what's going on. And in such a way that you can then start to have more creative engagement with it, instead of, in a way, being upset about it 
or not seeing it. And the other experience I had fairly uh, shortly after that was during a free season where you can travel and visit places. And I was in a bank changing money and the teller gave me too much money back. And so my first reaction was great. <laughs> More for me and one against the banking system. <laughs> so I was retreating with the loot. And then I stopped, like without thinking about it. Consciously I stopped. My body-mind complex stopped. And at that moment there was that kind of seeing. I can't do this. This person might suffer if I do this. So out of compassion, I retreated my step. I gave the money too much. And since then, I've always done it. If somebody gives me too much money back, I, I kind of point it out. And they look at me funny, like, you know, <laughs> should not you take advantage of this situation? And I actually can't. I actually can't, even for an insurance company, I can't do it. So, in a way, it was kind of suddenly something shifted. That, in a way, not only is that the self-centeredness, you're more aware of it, but actually something shifts. Something is dissolved. And then you can see more the other instead of seeing for yourself. And again, to me, that's what is interested in that kind of experiences of this. Actually, what I was doing was questioning, questioning, and then having this experience of awareness, having this experience of compassion. And then after 10 years, I stopped being a nun. I came back to England, and then everybody around me was doing vipassana meditation and awareness meditation. You had to be aware. You know, when you eat, being aware. And I thought, mm, why not? So I did a few of these awareness retreats. And I thought, mm, that works. Interesting. And that's why I kind of started to hear about these two concepts that Jake mentioned, the samatha and the vipassana, the concentration and the looking deeply. And then I remembered something my teacher used to say, that when we practice, we needed to cultivate together song, song, jok, jok, which basically means quiet, quiet, clear and clear. So basically we're saying we needed to cultivate together quietness and clarity, which actually are what these samatha and vipassana are about. And that's why I think, any, in a way, any Buddhist meditation, there are many different types of Buddhist meditation, Buddhist techniques, meditation technique. But it seems to me, before we look at the technique and think, oh, you know, this is a better technique, this is a shortcut to this, this is a more this, this is a more that. Actually, what are the building blocks? They are this samatha and vipassana. They are the concentration and the looking deeply. But then we have to see that each of them have two aspects. That in a way, samatha could be seen as concentration, but it also can be seen as the calm that comes from the concentration. Or the vipassana can be seen as literally looking deeply, 
or the effect of that, which often is translated as insight. So often vipassana meditation is translated as insight meditation. And so you sit in meditation waiting for insight, when actually possibly you need to cultivate the looking deeply, and possibly at some point there can be some insight. And so in some way you see the difference between the actual cultivation of these two main elements and the effect of that cultivation. So if we look at the concentration, often people will say they do the retreat, you've done a day of meditation, and possibly you had lots of thought. And from having lots of thought, you might deduce, I cannot concentrate. Often I hear this, I cannot concentrate because I have thought when I try to be aware of the breath or to be aware of the body. But actually, I think a lot of the time in daily life, we have a great ability to concentrate. I would say too much. We concentrate too much. When we obsess about relationship when we obsess about problem, when we obsess about certain physical sensation or certain thought or certain emotional sensation, we cannot think about anything else. So we can concentrate. But possibly we are not concentrated, concentrating in the way which is helpful. So I think this is what we have to see when we concentrate in meditation. What are we trying to do? Because often uh, we have been told in the past to concentrate, concentrate. You know? And generally we kind of like narrow the focus and we tense up. And so we have to be very careful that we don't do this when we try to concentrate here. Narrow and tense up. Sometimes we feel, if you look, your jaw, sometimes I have to watch out, like sometimes my jaw is trying to kind of, you know, make my meditation. But that does not work. So you need to see that there is a bit this tendency to associate concentration with that. Tensing and narrowing. And in a way to see that what we're trying to do is actually more anchoring. And of course, there can be two types, even in Buddhist meditation, two types of concentration what I would call the exclusive concentration. So everything, we try to push everything away, the thought, everything. And that can work up to a point. But generally, at the beginning, it's very tense making. And it might not be so useful in daily life. So what I would rather talk about during this retreat is what I call inclusive concentration. So that you focus on something but within a wide open awareness. So then the breath, the body, tomorrow the sounds, become an anchor. Something we can come back to. Not something that we tense and narrow around, but something that serves us as an anchor into the moment, into the experience. Because notice, that's what is interesting. You sit in meditation, or you walk in meditation, or you try to eat mindfully, or you try to work mindfully. 
And so you, you know, you're mindful, you're aware. And generally, if you're mindful and aware, you have what I would call a whole experience. You're mindful of yourself, people around you, nature, the birds. If you get lost, for example, in a thought, in a train of thought, actually you can be in New York, or you can be 10 years ago, and actually, generally, you don't hear the birds anymore. And it's only when somebody coughs, you leave New York, you leave 10 years ago, and then you're back here. And you're back here again with the whole experience. So I think this is what, in a way, to me, anchoring is about that. Helping us to move from a more narrow, abstract place to the whole experience. And then we can be more, in a way, creatively engaged with what is happening, what is arising in this moment. Of course, it comes a bit from the past, it's going to be a bit in the future, but then it's kind of like a more full experience. And so in a way to see that with, um, with this concentration, this focusing, this anchoring, so in a way it's kind of like we anchor in the breath, the body or the sounds tomorrow within this wide open awareness. So you have the foreground, you have the breath or the body or the sound, and in the background, you have everything else, rising, passing away. And so it just, to see, it's not kind of pushing away anything. We're just kind of putting it a little in the background and deciding to focus more on one aspect so that it's easier to anchor with it. And if we try to anchor with everything, too many things generally are going on. So we just choose one thing to anchor. But it doesn't mean that it's exclusive. You can start with the breath, then open to the body, start with the body, then go to the breath, then open to the sound. Because all of this is being aware. Being aware in that all multi-perspectival experience. And the anchoring is kind of in a way to ground us as a point of reference. Because what, what one of the things about concentration, one of the important elements and effect of concentration is this coming back. So you go away. And why do we go away in thought, feeling, sensation? Basically, if we go away in thought, it's because we have a functioning brain. The meditation is not trying to stop the functioning brain. Because often, you, sometimes you hear about having no thought. But actually, having no thought, and this is something you find in the Zen tradition, doesn't mean that there is no thought. Actually, it means that they are thought, but they are not sticky. They are not attached. And so the thought are, in a way, lighter, more spacious. So you can follow them if you want, leave them. There is more kind of freedom with them. So in that focusing, in that anchoring, you are with the breath, the body, or the sound, then you go away. Then you come back. Then you go away. Then you come back. And as a Zen master said, each thought, you have the opportunity to come back. So a thousand times you go away, 
a thousand times you come back. And when you do that, each time you come back, you do two things. You don't feed the mental pattern, and at the same time, you dissolve its power. And then it can go back to its creative functioning. Let me give you an example. So if we take planning, planning is a creative function of this organism. I need to plan to come here. I need to plan to live here. We need to plan. So that's something we need to do time to time. But if planning becomes a habit, then it's nearly become like a kind of a automatic. So you kind of sometimes can notice that, hmm, planning. And you might be planning where you're going to walk, how much you're going to eat here, or you might be planning your holiday, or you might be planning your retirement. And then you plan, and you plan. And generally, it kind of feeds itself. And then you try to, if you plan, you must remember what you plan. So then you have the planning of the planning of the planning of the planning, the remembering of the planning of the planning of the planning. So it, and that generally, I think, can be very tiring. And so in a way, if you try to be anchoring in the breath, for example, and then you go off into planning, then actually each time you plan, you have the opportunity actually to see hmm, planning. And, and then to make the choice. Do I continue with this planning, which very likely you've done before? And do I come back? So in a way, the anchoring, the concentration, is helping you to make that choice. Of, in a way, making the choice that this time I will come back to the breath. Not because planning is a bad idea. It's useful, but right now it might not be so useful. And then I come back. Right now, I might not need to plan my retirement, maybe closer to the time, or my holiday, closer to the time. And then how much do I need to think about it? And in a way, I would say, you know, when you're planning, you see, you, in meditation, what can be interesting also is to see, plan, hmm, one time, two time. I would say once it's five time, then you can drop it, you know. Then maybe another plan five times, and maybe back to the breath, and maybe maybe I can you know leave a little of the planning for now. He's seeing when is it useful to plan, when is it not useful to do it, so that it makes us kind of like oh I can't remember everything. So when is it? That's what one of the signs that it's more habitual when you become a little tense and stressed by it. Or when you do it, and then you can leave it. So in a way, that's what happened with the concentration, is that you go a little with it, but you don't feed it, because in a way, ah, planning. Let me go back to the (coughs) breath, the body in the sun, and come back to what is happening in this moment. Right now, I'm sitting in meditation, or working in meditation, or cutting the veggies, And possibly I don't need to plan my holiday or whatever it is. I can just be here. So anyway, that's what it's doing. The concentration is generally helping, I would say in terms of with spaciousness, 
because there is, they start to be more space, for example, around the mental habit or the emotional habit or various habits that we have. And then they can, over time, come back to their creative functioning. And so I would say that when we cultivate the concentration, this anchoring, this coming back, what it does is actually to create a little more space and also a little more calm. And then you have the second aspect. And the second aspect is looking deeply, or what you could also call experiential inquiry. But again, this is not complicated. Often some people think, Vipassana, I must have insight, I must understand, you know. It's actually very simple. I mean, there is different things you can be looking deeply into. But I think generally the easiest one is change. Just to be aware of change. And you can be aware of change in two ways. You can be aware of change in terms of something as a reason and in a way to see when it goes. Like you sit in meditation and suddenly you have this itch right there. I mean, it's so itchy, but you're not going to scratch it. So you just sit there and you go inside the itch. And it's so itchy. You have the feeling it's going to be there forever. You know, it's so intense. So you stay there with the itch. And then it's so gone. It's so gone. And it's very interesting to have this experiential experience in a way that it was so there. And because it was so there, you have such an impression it will be last the whole day and then I really can't meditate. Two, it's so gone. And that's what we mean by looking deeply, experiential inquiries, actually just going into that experience. Something appears, and then it goes. Sometimes it goes faster, sometimes it takes longer. Again, it depends on the condition. Another way it changes is within itself. That you might have an experience, kind of, you know, sensation in the knee, and if you go inside the sensation, it's kind of like vibrating, changing within itself. Or if you have a funny feeling, you know, you might have a funny feeling, a little maybe emotional sensation. And instead, in a way of going into the story of that, going in the experience of it, and how is it? And how is it like a kind of a block with a name written on it? Sadness, anger, whatever it is, disappointment? Or actually, is it just a funny sensation, possibly a little unpleasant, which is kind of changing, moving, coming, going? So that's what the Vipassana is about, is actually becoming more in tune with how things shift and change and move. And this, I think, is a great, I could say, medicine for the tendency we have to think things will last longer than they often do. And by kind of, because when there is intensity, we generally have this experience, <gasps> this is always like this. This is a signal. This is a signal for that tendency. It's always like this. It will never be like that. On the first day of fun, you know, we can have thoughts or we can feel a little sleepy. 
and from feeling a little sleepy or having thought, you might think, if it's like this today, it's going to be like this for the next four days. I will not be able to meditate. I really can't do this. But I would be surprised. Because generally by the second day, the sleepiness goes. And generally one is a little more awake. The same with the thought sensation. They also come and go. But that's why it is, it's interesting to see our tendency to move fast from, I have this experience... And it will either continue as it is, forever after, or it will repeat itself. I'm not saying it cannot repeat itself, but generally it's not always like this. Generally it happens upon conditions. And that generally that the second thing we look at and is how things arise upon conditions. And that's what you might have noticed today. We're not trying to create a permanent state in meditation, but actually to creatively engage, to be creatively aware of whatever different states appear, mental, emotional, physical, surrounding. And so it's kind of like, how can I be with what appears? And so that things generally change because of condition, inner and outer. And so in a way, the meditation process, I would say, is an exploration of the condition that forms myself, but myself meeting the condition of the environment. And I think we have to be careful to think that if I meditate long enough, I will reach some place which I will be above conditions. I don't think that's what's going to happen. But I think what's going to happen is more, we will be more in tune, aware, mindful of the conditions that give rise to things. And then we might start to be more kind of playing with them. To me, that's what is interesting. When you say always, never, it fixes things. But if you say, okay, what is going on here? How did it happen? Sometimes we can know why, sometimes we have no idea. So we kind of again exploring what triggers certain things. What helps us, as uh, Jake was saying, what is it that nourishes us? What is it that see what condition seems to make us in a more difficult place? So anyway, the, the looking deeply, the experiential inquiry, I would say helps us to be more clear, to be more bright, but also to be more open, open to what appears, what we experience. And so the two together, the calmness, the spaciousness, with the clarity, the openness, together they combine to become what I would call creative awareness, creative mindfulness. And so that's what we're doing here. And we can do it in many different ways, uh, many different styles. But I think to me that's what we're doing. We're cultivating this creative awareness. And in a way on a retreat, 
we're cultivating the power of this creative awareness, creative mindfulness, so that we can take it into our daily life. And there is some interesting um, simile in the ancient text, Buddhist text. You have the simile of the mindfulness, the awareness, being a little like a plowman plowing the field with a plow and and a cow. And there is three things that the plowman need to do to plow well the field. One is a steady direction. So in a way, the creative awareness helps us to have a steady direction, to have kind of like uh, a certain intention. And I think intention is very powerful. Because if kind of a plowman went like this, he would not really kind of get his uh, field plowed. Then the next thing you need to have is appropriate depth. So if you put too much on the plow, he's not going to advance. If he's too high, he's going to scheme. That's not going to work. And in the same way, when we cultivate the concentration and the experiential inquiry, we try to have the same balanced awareness, balanced mindfulness, balanced concentration, balanced Inquiry, looking deeply. And the third one is that we uncover by digging. So in a way, as he digs his furrow, then he can uncover either stone, either whatever. So in a way, with this process of concentrating, of looking deeply, then we uncover something. And so we kind of uncover the condition, the experiences, and then we can more creatively engage with them. And so in a way, what we're developing then is this creative awareness that then we can take. So it's not something that stays in Gaia House, stuck to the cushion, but actually we take into our daily life. And one way you can already sit on this retreat, and Jake talked a little about it already, is in nature. It's interesting. You know, hopefully it won't pour down with rain and you will be able to go outside, in the garden, outside, and it's quite beautiful, end of (coughs) summer. And so you have flowers, you have colors. And look, when you go for a walk, you go for a walk generally with the intention not only to be aware, to be present, but to be in nature, to breathe the fresh air, to see the tree, and, you know, benefit from nature. And very quickly, generally, you think about something else. The office, the holiday, 10 years ago, whatever. And look, you are, you are caught in this kind of abstract thought somewhere else, and you still walk a little automatically, and then you stop. And then you come back to the experience. And then you look at the flower. You look at the color. And often in that first moment of looking, it really looks brighter. It's like the purple is more purple and the blue is more blue. And you think, wow, awareness, mindfulness is magic. It's kind of like painting this, you know, like brighter. When actually it's not doing that, it's not magic. But actually it's removing the veil of abstraction. If we're somewhere else, 
We're only 50% here or 10% here sometimes. So how are we going to see anything vividly? So that's something we can, in a way, play with during the retreat, when we are in nature, looking at something and really being there and kind of, you know, being somewhere else and not actually really seeing it. Then another thing we can do is that here with the work, which we then also can take into our daily life in our work. How do we approach the working period? Are we approaching it that, you know, I was unlucky again, I got late and I got the worst job and I have to clean the toilet and I hate cleaning the toilet, you know. I'll do it, but if only, you know. Oh, you know, I must cut this carrot, but there must be the perfect carrot. You know, and he said, you know, like, you know, that, that carrot, and I must, you know, each carrot, and I'm going to be so mindful and so slow, and, you know, you know, and you still have the pile of carrots, and, you know, <laughs> but I must have the right calibrated carrot. You know. Or you're sweeping, and you're thinking of something else, you know. But how can we bring the mindfulness? This is what I learned when I came back from being a nun in Korea. And having no, I had never been to university and I really, I could not find a job. I mean, I had nothing. And so the only thing I could do actually was to be a house cleaner. And this was a great experience actually, be a house cleaner. It gave me a great respect for house cleaner actually. And I did this for 10 years. And I actually had a lot of insight how I was cleaning, you know. And really, and I could see the difference between, you know, doing it, I don't know, and really doing it, really being present, my whole body and mind, not being ahead of myself, not being in the past, but just being, trying to do the best job I could do in that moment. And it was very satisfying. And so in a way, it's kind of when we come to a job, do we do it, really present to it, not too slow, not too fast, not ahead? Not... And then really, I would say, enjoy doing it. Or look in daily life. When we work, are we actually ahead of ourselves? Often we start something, and we're already the next thing. And we start the next thing, and already the next thing. And it was interesting once we were teaching a kind of a work retreat in daily life. And so the people came in the morning, we gave them some suggestions, then we met at the end of the day and to see how it had gone. And one of us suggested to them to really try to be present, but really be in the work, not ahead, just really in the work. And being listening, present to the body, the mind, the people, the environment, doing the best they go in the situation. And what was interesting is one lady who thought and felt very stressed at work because she thought she had to be ahead of herself in order to be efficient. And she thought if she was really present, like, you know, in this mindfulness way, it really would not be efficient. Because she thought she would go too slowly or she would do this, do that, and it would not work. And she tried to do this to that time for her whole day, I'm going to be present. Not ahead, I'm going to be present to what I do. 
And actually she said she was so much more efficient because she did not have the stress. She was really present to what she did. Once she finished it, she left it behind, not worrying about how had she done it. She'd done the best she could. Next one, next one. So anyway, that, in a way, how can I work? Be present to the work. doesn't mean that you have to watch the breath. <laughs> I think it's very important to see what, when we bring the awareness to the work. is what I call informal mindfulness. So it's not anchoring in the breath, but it's more having that wide awareness and that kind of anchoring to come back because we can see how we pulled by different things. And how can I still be in the environment, mindful, creatively engaged? And at the same time, not feeling like I disperse myself. Or then not being so too obsessed that I don't see things around. And it's in the way, again, that balanced mindfulness. How can I be present in a way which doesn't make me self-conscious? This is what you have to be careful with mindfulness, that it doesn't become this judgment and then makes you more stress. But actually the mindfulness helps you to be more inside what you are doing. So that is kind of more like a dancer flowing through the dance than actually the spectator or kind of somebody who goes and has to check you know, what the dancer is doing and kind of, you know, I, I then have to ask to report on it, but to be more in it. And so that's why you could kind of a little experiment during the time you're here with the work to see when is it I'm too constricted around it or too spaced out around it or how does it feel when I'm really, in a way, in the flow, present, mindful <coughs> to what am I doing in this balanced way? which has a certain direction, a certain intention. You can also bring the creative awareness to relationship. How do I relate to children, to partner, to family, to friends, to neighbors, to the person, to the postman, at the supermarket? How do we relate? How do we share the space? What comes in? Like if you have a partner, what comes in? How do I relate to that person, to a child? Is it in terms of me? Or is it in terms of them? Or is it in terms of both of us? I am, am I creatively engaging with that person and with myself? Or am I, in a way, conditioning everything by what I want, what I expect? Once I had this uh, funny experience with my husband. I was working in the garden, and it was very hot. And I said, it's hot. I need a glass of water. It would be nice if Stephen, my husband, brought me a glass of water. If he loved me, he would bring me a glass of water. And then suddenly he appeared without glass of water. <laughs> and then I, I kind of saw the whole thing, you know, how had I kind of like extrapolated around this. And then I told him, 
And then, of course, now he brings me a glass of water, you know, whenever I am in the garden. But it's in a way the way we assume. I think sometimes we assume. You know, and if you don't tell them, they don't know what we assume. You know, we have to see how do, do we relate, from what place. Uh, also, another thing which is interesting in a relationship sometimes is that the problem is not the love you might have for the person. But often the problem is when the people decide to live together. And then the problem is a habit. You know, you have your own habits of doing things, and they have their own habits of doing things. And of course, I mean, we think our habits are better than theirs. And if they really love me enough, they would kind of, you know, become like me. I mean, we, we love them because they're different, but if we live together, they have to become like me. That's what is interesting. Where are we coming from? You know, what is going on? Or when, you know, sometimes there is this uh, thing about, you know, Buddhist, meditator, they must be mindful and compassionate. And so generally we must not be angry. You know? Anger is generally a big no, no, no anger. So then you're not angry, but then you become resentful. You know, so somebody does something, it's okay, it's okay, I can understand. Yes, I have to have loving kindness and compassion. I understand, it's okay, it's okay. Second time something happened. Yes, it's impermanent. Yes, you know, it's a rise upon condition. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> and then the third time you explode. And they don't understand why, you know. I didn't do anything. That's why we have to be very careful to not use it in a way to repress. Mindfulness is not to repress. But to see that how, if there is a difficulty, in a way to me, it's in between. Uh, looking at this different level of experience. Sometimes things are light. So they will arise and they will pass away very fast. And then you can ask this question. If you have a thought, a feeling, a sensation, you go into it and you ask, how long is this going to last? And if it goes within five to ten minutes, it's okay. Because it's just light. As long as you don't rationalize it. You just see how it is. You just watch the sensation. And then if it goes, it's like the itch. It came and it goes. Then sometimes it's more habitual. So it comes more from habits. And then we have to see what is it that triggers it. What are the conditions? How can I creatively engage with this condition? And really bringing the creative awareness to that. So the light level is actually going with the creative awareness in how long it lasts. The second one is really looking what triggers it. I am not always like this. I have a tendency to feel like this. What happens? What is the trigger? What are the contributing factors? What are the conditions? How can I help myself there? And then you have the third level, and this is an intense level. When things suddenly happen, they just happen. It's a shock, either happy or unhappy, and it just shakes you. 
positively, negatively. And then it has to go through the system. And just because you're mindful doesn't mean you're not going to be shaken by it. But can, in a way, we be aware of it? And actually, I think there, the anchoring can help. Not in stopping it, but actually in helping us to come back for a few seconds to the breath, to the body, to the sound, just to have a few seconds where it's not so intense. Then the intensity comes back, and if we don't feed it, over time, it will disappear after a day or two, depending on what happens. Many years ago, I was teaching in uh, South Africa, which is supposedly a very dangerous place. But then I phoned home to my mother, because I live above my mother in a house in France. And I said, oh, how are things? And my mother says, we've been robbed. So a thief came, and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, I have family around, so they helped her and things were okay. And then I started to teach. And then after a day, I was leading a guided meditation. And suddenly I realized that for the last day, I had had two loops, two obsessive loops, to do with that, the robbery. First loop, revenge. How can I find a way that if they come back, I am going to get them? And the best I could come up was like a mouse trap, you know, that <laughs> would get them. But I thought this would not be very efficacious and <laughs> might not be such a good idea. So I dropped it. And the second one was planning, security. How can I plan to secure the place? And I thought, I am going to be a month in South Africa. I can't do anything. So what's the point of planning about it? What's the point of worrying about it? And so in that moment of creative awareness, it went. And after that, I did not think about it again until I came back home and had to do what I had to do. But just to show that for a day, of course, I was obsessing about it. But in a way, that just stayed there. And then time to time, I would come back to the breath, to the body, to the sound. And then when I really saw it, with the creative awareness, it just went. And so in a way, that's what we do. We're developing the power of creative awareness so that sometimes when we see something, we can see it. And then the power of it just goes. And then we can continue with whatever is in our experience in that moment. So that's what I wanted to say today. And we have a little time. If you have any questions or comments. Yes? Actually, in... Um, in two days, I plan to really talk about it. So I'll kind of explain it in detail. But basically, it's, it, my idea is that often, 
if we are on the meditative path, we sometimes have this idea of what I would call equanimity. There is often this word, equanimity. And the equanimity, it seems to me, is like we have this idea either of detachment or non-attachment or equanimity. And often with that idea, you have the feeling that you must get either up somewhere where you're going to float so far that you know nothing is going to touch you. So that, that what you're doing in meditation is kind of floating as high as you can. Or you will manage to have like a kind of a carapace, a protection that whatever happened, I don't care. I'm okay. But to me, I would say this is not very interesting. <laughs> it's kind of nearly becoming like a robot. And in my experience, when I did meditation, what it seems to me is that actually what we're doing is dissolving the obstacle to our creative potential. Because with our tendency to grasp, and I'll talk more about that, and to fix and to limit, to uh, intensify, to abstract, then we actually stop the creative potential. For example, if you take fear, fear often is fear in the future. So fear in the future can only go bigger. You sit there and you're afraid of this or that, and if it happens, oh, really, you know, oh, la, 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 my life is finished. And, I, you know, and we have this huge, and you really, in a way, frighten yourself more and more. When often when the thing itself happens, you are fine. Because in that moment, your creative potential can deal with the situation in the moment. So I see the creative engagement. I see, in a way, the, cre I see the, the concentration and the inquiry helping us to have more calm space, create clarity and openness. So then there can be more this awareness. But the awareness is not actually us staring at reality and doing nothing, but actually becoming aware in a creative way. To me, there seems to be this creative aspect that something goes, something which actually stops that creativity. And that's why I talk about creative equanimity. I talk about creative engagement. And I don't use the word detachment or not attachment because I feel it's really uh, a misnomer of what happens. That actually something goes, and it's not just an empty hole, but something goes, so actually something which is more of the nature, I would say, of wisdom, of compassion, but also of creativity, like a certain, I would say, playfulness. Because often we feel stuck. It's like this or it's like that. You have to make a decision. It's forever after. If I make this decision, it will determine my whole life. I mean... I would say it will determine the next six months, the next year or two, but your whole life, nobody knows what's going to happen. So in a way, it's that. Creative engagement, to me, is giving us more choice. Choice which we start to cultivate, 
by just that moment when we suddenly, ah, I am planning, daydreaming, judging, hmm, I can come back to the breath. So from that little choice, in a way, all these little choices then leads us, I would say in our daily life, to have more choices, but not a choice which frighten us. Because sometimes we, I can't make a decision because it will be for my whole life. But more, oh yeah, I could look at it that way. Oh, possibly that way. And then somebody might suggest, oh, what about that? And instead of being frightened by the choices, it's more, yeah, there are different possibilities. And in a way, I would say nearly waiting for the moment when we think, okay, this one. And trusting that we will know at one point that we don't have to sort out everything all the time. That's why I say, don't worry about making decisions. Wait for it to actually happen. I mean, think about it a bit, but leave space for it to emerge, actually, from all what you know, all what you think about, but also all what you don't think about. And suddenly could come up. So if there is uh, nothing else, there will be some uh, walking meditation. So continuing with the mindfulness, the awareness of the body when we walk. And then uh, we'll uh, start the meditation again at uh, 9 o'clock until 9.30. Thank you.